All right. Let's go ahead and get started. This room will double to triple in size over the next five minutes. It's a really, it's a miracle. It's like the loaves every Sunday as people come in late. Okay, so uh, a few things. First of all, how is everybody? Good. People who are here, good to see you. Still recovering from daylight savings time. Uh, Today we're going to be going over the history of the English Bible. Before we do that, I want to say something pastorally. Uh, And then I want to tell you why we're doing this. Sometimes it can be helpful to have kind of the so what behind some of these lessons. So first of all, pastorally, this has nothing to do with the lesson. I just want to mention this. Uh, I just want to encourage you, if you're coming in this morning and you've got anything big going on in your life that's stressing you out. So maybe you are anxious. Maybe there uh, are marriage struggle issues you have. Maybe somebody has wronged you or offended you or these kind of things. Whatever the issue is, if you're a Christian... The good news is not only that Christ is with you now, that he never leaves you or forsakes forsakes you, but also that in eternity he never leaves you. So there is a different way of suffering as a Christian. So I just want to encourage you. That has nothing to do with the lesson. If you're like me, so I'll say this. The times I feel most spiritually attacked by the enemy, which I don't know how to describe what that's like. I think it's just like he takes the sins you already struggle with and they're just kind of amplified. Maybe that's a good way to describe it. Uh, For whatever reason, the times I feel most spiritually attacked are after three things or, or before three things. One is if I'm preaching or teaching. So on a Sunday morning, I am a wreck emotionally and spiritually. I don't know why that is. That's just spiritual. Number two, anytime I try to study the Bible or read the Bible or read theology. Like I can remember before going into certain classes and stuff on theology, I would just be racked with anxiety or guilt or frustration or feeling like God is far from me. And then the other one is after a spiritual high. For whatever reason, like if I share the gospel with somebody or I feel close to God or something like that, for whatever reason, after that spiritual high, uh, I feel attacked. So I just want to mention that to say, if anybody in here is in a season where you feel like you're just struggling or you're wrestling, you really do love Christ, but there's just some sort of issue, that's normal. That actually means the enemy sees you as a threat. That's actually a good thing. That as we grow, as we grow in discipleship, as our church grows, it, it just puts a target on our back for the enemy. And so... Uh, The reason we should be really encouraged, though, is one, that means we're doing what we're supposed to do, Uh, and two, greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world, and so ultimately everything's going to be okay. So on that note, let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll talk about what we're actually here to talk about. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're good and that you're loving and that you're kind, and though we mess up all the time, you're overwhelmingly gracious that we cannot exhaust your grace. I thank you that in an eternity past, you looked across the sea of damnable humanity, and you decided to elect and save and to change the hearts of those who were rebellious against you. And so we thank you for this time. We thank you for that truth. We ask that you bless this lesson, that you would bless this time together, that after we get out of here and we go to the sermon, that you would bless that as well. So we love you. We thank you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Today we're going to talk about uh, the history of the English Bible. We only actually have, after today, two more weeks on our study of Scripture, Bibliology, and then we're going to spend our time talking about how to interpret the Bible. That should be a lot of fun. Believe it or not, there are correct interpretations of the Bible, and we're going to teach you how to find a correct interpretation and then defend it. That way, when your crazy friend says, no, that text means this, you can say, no, actually, it means this, and here's why. Bam, 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 and you can give reasons. It should be a lot of fun. Now, before we talk about the history of the English Bible, why are we doing that, let me give you some reasons uh, why we're talking about some of these historical things today. I think that's helpful. That way you don't walk out of here thinking you just learned some facts, although that's good and right in and of itself anyway, Uh, but also so you can kind of see the so what. So there's four things I want you to kind of take away from this lesson of why we're learning about the English Bible. Number one, I want you to be able to trust your English Bible. 
I want you to go home, and when you read your Bible, I don't want you thinking, oh, I'm not a scholar, and I don't know Hebrew, or I don't know Greek, and so I can't really have access to God's word. I want you to know that it is God's word, and you have access to it. As we talked about in the clarity of Scripture, you don't have to be some sort of PhD in patristics or something to understand the Bible, that you, as a Christian who has the Spirit, can come before God's word, and he will speak to you, all right? And he speaks to you through his word. Number two, uh, I want you to be thankful for the fact that you have a Bible in your own language. I want you to see the men who've died to get that book in your hands. Uh, I want you, as you're sitting there, maybe it's uh, at the breakfast table or maybe it's on your bed before you go to bed or whatever, where you are thankful to God that you have something that most Christians have not had, which is a Bible in your own tongue. All right, so out of the 2,000 years of church history, uh, at least three-fourths of those, Christians didn't have a Bible in their own language. And then even after that, if you even knew Latin and you were educated, you couldn't afford a Bible because they were copied by hand and they were really, really expensive. And then even after that, even if you knew, even if uh, you had a Bible that you could afford that was in your own language, for most of church history, people have been illiterate. So you wouldn't have been able to read it anyway. So even in the 1800s, if you're in industrial England, you're a boy who probably doesn't, works in a factory, you know, 15 hours a day and tries not to lose body parts in the machinery and get your hand cut off or something like this, and you can't read. So even though there's a Bible, finally in your own tongue, you can't read it. So for most of world history, Christians have not been able to read the Bible on their own, and we can. We have a, just an embarrassment of riches when it comes to this. You can pick out of like 20 translations and have it on your phone. I mean, it's, it's like Jetsons meets Luther meets Space Bible. It's crazy, all right? And you have that. So I want that to produce worship in your heart. When you go home, you realize you don't have to just wonder who God is. You don't have to just wonder what he said about marriage. You don't have to just wonder what he said about the end times. Whatever it might be that you have in black and white, the very word of God, in a language you can understand. That's a gift. That should produce worship in your heart. Number three, I think that it's really, really helpful to to study church history because it helps us see our presuppositions. We assume that what's quote-unquote traditional in churches is what we grew up with. So when we think church history and we think tradition, we think basically the religion of our parents or something like that. And I want you to see that it goes beyond your parents. It goes way back before then. Uh, I want you to see some of the things that maybe you assume uh, and to have those things be challenged in church history. I'll, I'll give you one example. We're not getting into this topic today, but I'll just give you one example of this. Uh, right now in evangelicalism, there is kind of a big debate going on as far as women's roles in ministry. Can a woman be an elder? Can a woman teach over uh, men in a church? These kind of questions. And the reason things like church history are really helpful is because you look across church history and you're like, why isn't that debated at all? Like out of all the things that are debated in church history, you really don't, I mean, there's a little discussion about it, but you don't really have people promoting this idea that a woman should be an elder or something like that. That's a very modern thing. And so by seeing that the rest of church history doesn't have that, that should cause us to question our presuppositions. That should cause us to say, wait, are we really getting this from the Bible or are we reading kind of a Western 21st century American culture back onto the text? And so church history helps you question your presuppositions. And then lastly, there's benefit in knowing things about the Bible just for the sake of knowing things about the Bible. I'll give you an example. So if you're in the Marine Corps or something, they don't just give you a rifle and say, here, go shoot it at the enemy. They make you learn everything about that rifle. You're gonna learn how many feet per second the the bullet comes out of that. You're gonna learn uh, how to repair it. You're gonna learn how to clean it. You're gonna put on a blindfold and put it back together. Uh, And so the reason that you need to know that is because there's times where you need that technical knowledge. Typically, everything will work well. But when that bolt carrier breaks or that sear breaks or something in the gun breaks, all of a sudden now you know how to fix it, you know how to do that, and you can get back in the fight. 
Because if you're in the Marine Corps, that rifle, that is your life. I mean, if that goes down, you might go down. Well, the Bible is our life. As the Old Testament will say that God's word, it is our life. And so there's, it's helpful to have some of this technical knowledge, some of this historical knowledge about it. That way when somebody comes up to you and they say, well, do you know how many Bible translations there are? How do you know yours is the right one? The Bible wasn't even written in English. We can't trust it. You can say, oh yeah, boom, 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 and you have that knowledge. It's an apologetic. It's a way to even defend the faith a little bit. And so that's another reason why we're gonna study that. So, does that sound good? Those things make sense? All right, let's do this. Let's talk about the history of the English Bible. I even have a little PowerPoint for you. I'm terrible at PowerPoint, so I don't have like where the words spiral in all weird and these kind of things like they did in the early 1990s. But I have some pictures because pictures are helpful when it comes to uh, learning a little bit about church history. The first guy I want you to see is Johannes Gutenberg. There he is. He's just a looker, isn't he? Just a looker. All right. Johannes Gutenberg. Let's talk about why this guy is so important. Okay. Before the invention of the printing press, all right, before the invention of the printing press in, in 1454, Bibles and things were copied by hand, okay? So if I were to say to you, I need a thousand copies of the Bible by hand, how long would that take you? A long time. And guess what the margin of error is? Pretty big, because eventually you'll get sleepy or you'll kind of drift away or whatever, and you'll end up switching words and misspelling things. Uh, if you want a particular type of font, tough. Your font is whatever the handwriting is of the guy that copied that Bible, all right? So they're copied by hand. A lot of times they're copied on what's called vellum, kind of like a thinned out leather. Uh, and so they are very expensive because if you're gonna pay me to write a Bible by hand and I'm gonna do ornamental lettering and a bunch of different colors and all that, you better pay me bukus of dollars, all right? You're gonna pay me a lot of money. And so it is, Bibles are expensive. They're hard to produce. There's a larger margin of error. And before Gutenberg, you even had some wooden presses What's unique about Gutenberg is what's called a movable type printing press. Let me explain what I mean by that. So let's say you, you commission me to make a thousand Bibles and I don't want to write them all by hand. What I'll do is I'll take a block of wood and I'll carve out the page, but I've got to do it backwards, right? Because it's going to mirror it onto the page. So all of a sudden I'm, you know, trying to not do this the wrong way. And oh, my S is backwards, so I've got to throw that one away and start again. And I'm going to carve out a block of wood for page one of the Bible. So it's going to take me forever. Page one, stamp that a thousand times, throw that away. Page two, we gotta carve all this out, stamp a thousand of those two pages, all the way for all the pages of the Bible, okay? And every time I mess up on that carving, I've gotta throw that away. That takes forever as well. So what's unique about Gutenberg's press is that you can move the type around. You can move the type around, okay? So what you can do is you can take page one of the Bible and you already have the letters. You don't have to carve them. You just put the letters in the correct order, again, mirrored backwards. You take a roller of paint and you roll it on there and then you tighten that little thing down on the side and it presses down page one. Move the page, put another piece of paper in, tighten it down, page two. And, and then, or I'm sorry, another copy of page one. And then once you're done making all the copies of page one, you now can switch around the type for page two. And so you're now able, with this invention, to mass-produce books for the first time in world history. The margin of error is much less, it's less expensive, it's easier to do, and you have a whole printing industry that arises out of this. Now, why do I tell this? Without this invention, without this machine, the Reformation would never have taken place. Without this machine, the, Re the Reformation would never have taken place. The Reformation is dependent upon branding. It is dependent upon marketing. 
when Luther writes a treatise about justification or he writes a treatise critiquing the Pope or something like that, in the small town in Wittenberg, they have six printing presses, which would have been enormous for a town that size, so that they can quickly get Luther's works out of there. Basically, everything he writes, they're printing, sending them out, they're selling like hotcakes, all right? And it's with this invention you get uh, the printing of a very popular Bible, what's called the Gutenberg Bible. Has anybody ever heard of that? Raise your hand if you've heard of that, the Gutenberg Bible. Okay, pretty good. So what happens is, once this printing press is invented, people are like, what should we print? Oh, I don't know, maybe the most important book in world history? How about the Bible? And so you get the Gutenberg Bible, which was a two-volume set in Latin uh, that was a Bible that you could now mass produce. This makes it where churches can have some, they can have extras, but the Bible at this point is still in Latin. Again, this is 1454, this is still before the time of the Reformation. Now, <clears throat> if you ever want to get me a gift, I'm not saying you have to, but if you ever want to get me a gift, if you can ever find an original of the Gutenberg Bible, that would be a great gift for me. The reason I would like that gift is because one page of the Gutenberg Bible is worth between fifty dollars and $75,000 per page. They're worth millions, okay? There's only about 49 or so of them left in the world. There's 10 of them in the United States. Germany has 14. They've got the most of them. Uh, and uh, when they originally did it, they made about 180 of these Bibles, uh, 160, 180. So they're very expensive, very, very rare, very beautiful. Do you know where the closest Gutenberg Bible is to us in McKinney, Texas? It's at the University of Texas in Austin, all right? They actually have a copy of the Gutenberg Bible there. Probably in their library that says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I think that if they knew that that was about Jesus, they'd probably take it down. It wasn't just about generic UT knowledge or whatever. Uh, but anyway, they have an actual copy of the, uh, the Gutenberg Bible there at the University of Texas. And I'll tell you one fun story. In uh, 1969, <clears throat> Harvard has a copy, by the way, of a Gutenberg Bible, Harvard University. In 1969, there was a guy that tried to break in and steal it. So he went into the library, he hid in the bathroom somehow until everybody left at night, and then he went to go try to steal the Gutenberg Bible, but it weighed 70 pounds, okay? Again, don't think modern books as light as they are, and you've got the paperback binding and all of that. These things are heavy. So he puts it kind of in his sack, I guess like an old school criminal, maybe with a money bag sign on it or whatever, and so he puts the Gutenberg Bible in there, throws it over his shoulder, and, he's, and he has to try to... Uh, he has to try to get down from six stories, but it's 70 pounds. So as he's trying to climb down the building, he falls and fractures his skull. That's what happens when you try to steal the Gutenberg Bible, you see. So anyway, uh, that is the Gutenberg Bible. So the printing press is really, really important and really, really essential for us getting Bibles in our own language because you can mass produce Bibles at this point. Before, 15, before 1454, you can't do that. You copy it by hand, you make wood carvings, it takes forever, it's expensive, it's tedious, but with the invention of the printing press, you can now mass produce books, which will become really, really, really important. Now, I wanna to talk to you about three particular guys here. So Gutenberg's important, but I wanna to talk to you about three different guys in theology that are really important for this lesson in the history of the English Bible. And uh, there's a great lecture online by a guy named Dan Wallace at Dallas Seminary uh, about Erasmus, if you want to look at that. I've got some of my information from him, very, very helpful. But I wanna go over each of these guys and tell you why they're important. And then next week, Jeff is gonna talk about Bible translations. Why are there so many, even in English? What's the best way to translate the Bible? Uh, in Hebrews, or in, in, the, in uh, Hebrew, when it says that God has a long nose, that's a Hebrew idiom to say that God is really, really patient. He doesn't have a, he doesn't have a short fuse. He doesn't have a short fuse. His nose is really long. Should you interpret that word for word? God has a long nose, and people think of him like Pinocchio? 
Or should you summarize that? And you should say, oh, he's slow to anger. He's slow to anger. That's a tough question. How, how literal do you want it to be? Jeff will deal with that kind of thing next week. So today we're going to talk about getting up the English Bible up through the, uh, the King James Version, and then he'll talk about translations next week. Okay, let me show you another guy you need to know. This, this uh, again, just strapping young lad. Let me give you his name. His name is Desiderius Erasmus of Rotterdam. <laughs> if any of you women who are pregnant need a name for your child... I highly recommend Desiderius, all right? He will certainly get stuffed in a locker in high school. Uh, Desiderius Erasmus of Rotterdam, 1466 through 1536. I'll tell you why this guy is important in just a second. I want to give you a uh, few, few facts about him. Uh, he's about 20 years older than Martin Luther, okay? About 20 years older than Martin Luther. He's the illegitimate son of a Roman Catholic priest, okay? Pop quiz, are priests allowed to marry in Roman Catholicism? No. If your dad is a priest, there's a problem there, okay? That's not like a family business, right? You might, uh, if your dad works in the oil industry, you might go in the oil industry. If your dad is a priest, that's not a thing, all right? So he's the illegitimate son of a Roman Catholic priest. He was largely self-taught. He did have a doctorate, but here's how he got his doctorate. He went and studied at a school in Italy and was there for one day, and they gave him a doctorate, okay? Uh, That's called a degree mill, Uh, You want to stay away from those. That's not uh, quite a real degree. But he is the preeminent Latin scholar of his day and Greek scholar of his day, both. So he is the best in the world in the 1500s at Greek, classical Greek, and he is best in the world in Latin, both. To be the best at any one of those would be an amazing feat. He was originally a Latin scholar. His Latin was so good that when he wrote letters, just writing letters to friends and family, they would take the letters and they would go publish them just so you could see his rhetoric, just so you could see how good his Latin was. You just had books of published letters from Erasmus. And then at the age of 32, which is a long, you know, typically it's easier to learn languages the younger you are. At the age of 32, he decides that he wants to learn Greek. And so he teaches himself Greek. And he becomes the best Greek scholar in the world. Best Latin scholar, best Greek scholar, Desiderius Erasmus of a place called Rotterdam, which makes him sound like a villain or something. And uh, that's, uh, that's Erasmus, all right? That's Erasmus. Uh, he wanted to become the greatest Hebrew scholar as well, but by that time he thought, you know what? I've already spent a lot of time in Latin and Greek. I don't need to be the best at this next language in the world. So he kind of confined himself to being a Latin and a Greek scholar. Let me tell you why this guy is so important. This guy is the one that creates, is the first one to publish a Greek New Testament, We now have the printing press. We can now mass produce these things. He's the first one to create a Greek New Testament that's mass produced. This would be in Koine. Yeah, this would be in Koine. uh, And so he creates this Greek New Testament. And this is going to be the Greek New Testament from which the King James is going to use for its New Testament into English. This is going to be the New Testament that Martin Luther uses. When Martin Luther, when people are trying to kill Martin Luther... And he goes and he hides out in the Vartburg Castle and grows a beard and starts dressing like a knight. Amen. Uh, he translates the entire Bible from Hebrew and Greek into German. And the Greek New Testament that he uses is the Greek New Testament by Erasmus. So, Gutenberg, we need him so we can mass produce books. This is the guy that first creates the mass producible uh, Greek New Testament. The first one was uh, uh, published in March, on March the 1st, 1516. March the 1st, 1516. When did the Reformation begin? 1517. 1517. One year later. 
all right? You have to have a Greek New Testament that people can appeal back to if they're gonna fight the Roman Catholic Church that has a Latin version of the Bible. So that is why Erasmus is uh, famous. Now, he is an opponent of Martin Luther. So Martin Luther's like, man, we love your Greek New Testament. Thanks for publishing that. You're awful. And they fight each other on everything else, okay? He is a humanist. When I say humanist, don't think like an atheist that rejects God. That's what we have a tendency to think of as a humanist today. Someone like Richard Dawkins is a humanist. A humanist in this time means somebody who wants to go back to classical learning, someone who thinks there's a lot of value in going back to classical Greek and Roman authors. And so he is a humanist scholar of his day. He has a famous quote because he is so bookish and so nerdy. He has a famous quote. It's this by Erasmus. When I get a little money, I buy books. If there is anything left, I buy food. All right, that's, uh, that's Erasmus. That's Erasmus. So important guy, the first one to mass publish a Greek New Testament. Okay, so we'll do a little pause and a little pop quiz. Who is John Gutenberg? Inventor of the printing press. Before that, it's hard to get Bibles copied. It takes forever. Who is Erasmus? Yes, not the, let's be clear, not the first one to translate the New Testament into Greek. The first one to publish, mass produce uh, a copy of the Greek New Testament on this new printing press, okay? On this new printing press. We'll talk about that in a second when we get to the King James Version of the Bible, okay? Now, let's talk, before we get to our next guy, let's talk a little bit about an English Bible. So we need Gutenberg for the printing press. We need Erasmus for his Greek New Testament. Now let's talk about the English-speaking world. When I taught on the Bible in the medieval and early church, I said that the Roman Catholic Church doesn't want at least at this time, today they're fine with it, but at this time they did not want Bibles in the common language of the people. Who remembers some reasons uh, that they didn't want the Bible in the common tongue of the people? Number one, it's vulgar. Latin is refined, it's polished, it's the language of Rome, the most powerful empire the world has ever known. And so if you're gonna translate it to English, or German, if you say I love you in German, it sounds like you're cursing somebody out, right? It's, I love you, but it's, it sounds, I mean, it sounds aggressive. If somebody yells at you in German, you just think of World War II movies, right? Uh, or French or something. Even languages we would think are beautiful. They're not as refined as Latin, which is ironic because the Latin Vulgate is called the Vulgate because it was considered vulgar because it was not Hebrew or Greek, all right? So that was one reason. Who remembers the other reason? That's exactly right. If you, so his answer was that they don't trust the average person to have a copy of the Bible in their own language because they'll misinterpret it. Think about it. The Pope has probably the equivalent education of three doctorates and speaks multiple languages. If you're just some farmer who can barely read German, who are you to think that you can interpret the Bible and you can understand the mysteries of the Trinity and how we think of predestination and the role of the church and these kind of things? Who do you think you are? And so in their mind, it was, it's scary. If you, it's kind of like, now, let, let me just say this so we can be kind of sympathetic to their thinking, because we would disagree with this. We're Protestants. I want Bibles in all of your hands. I want you all wrestling with it. Will some people misinterpret it? Yes, we'll rebuke them, and we'll keep marching on. But here's what you've got to think of if you're in the Roman Catholic Church. Imagine that you're a medical doctor. Imagine you're a medical doctor, and you've had to spend all this time getting your MD. Maybe you also have a joint PhD. You spent all this time in your residency learning how to do surgery, and all of a sudden, you're going to take a heart surgery textbook and just give it to a guy who has no education, and he's going to perform a surgery. Does that stress you out a little bit? Okay, now you're doing that on people's souls. 
That's why it's stressful. That's why they're doing that. So I, I disagree with them, but I'm just trying to let you see it kind of from their vantage point. That's kind of what they're thinking. That's why they don't want these Bibles into the, uh, into the hands of the common people, all right? Now, let's talk about the English Bible. Let's talk about some figures you need to see. Let's go to the next one. This is John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe. He looks kind of like a Renaissance Moses, all right? Uh, that's John Wycliffe. Some people say Wycliffe. Wycliffe is probably a closer pronunciation to what's correct. Now, he, uh, he lived from about 1329 through 1384. He was a professor at Merton College at Oxford University, and he believed some things that were revolutionary for his time, just crazy things. Let me just mention what some of these crazy things he believed are. Number one, he thought that man could go directly to God through Jesus Christ and did not need a priest or a pope to do so. Amen. Amen. <laughs> these crazy things we hold, all right? But at his, in his day, that was seen as crazy. That was seen as ridiculous. You have to go to the priest to get absolution of sins. You have to go through a priest to be infant baptized. You have to go to the priest to take mass. You have to have a priest. If you don't have a priest or a pope, you don't get to Jesus. You've got these intermediaries you have to go through before you get to Jesus in medieval thinking. And so he, and this is before Luther's time, almost 200 years before Luther, all right? So this is, uh, he's very revolutionary in this, but he believed, he was at Oxford University, he believed that man could go directly to God through Christ and did not need a priest or pope. Number two, this other crazy thing he believed, he believed that the Bible should be the sole authority in Christianity. What is the authority in the Roman Catholic Church? What is the ultimate authority? There's two of them. Tradition of the official church, canon law, these kind of things, and the Bible. It's two things. Well, his view was that the Bible should be the sole, main, ultimate authority in Christianity. Kind of what Jeff was talking about last week with the Reformation of uh, the idea of sola scriptura. There's a lot of authorities in our life, but the one that has no standard above it is the Bible. Okay? Number three, he was against transubstantiation. He was against transubstantiation. What is transubstantiation? Somebody, somebody, this is, I mean, this is for a gold star. You get an A plus, there'll be a big test at the end of this. If you get this now, you don't have to take the test. Who knows what it is? Joe. That's exactly right. Very good. Absolutely right. Transubstantiation is that in the, it, it, this, is, it, this is the Catholic view then and now, is that when you take communion, you are not eating bread or drinking wine at all. It might taste like bread. It may smell like wine. But those are just the appearances. Those are the shadows. Your eyes can deceive you. The essence of what it really is is the body and blood of Christ. So when you're partaking of communion, you're not just partaking of Christ in a special way. You are literally, physically eating and drinking the body and blood of Jesus. If a lost person takes communion, do they still consume Christ in a Roman Catholic thinking? Yes, they do. They do it to their damnation but they still consume him, all right? And Wycliffe thought, uh, that sounds a little strong. I don't know that I agree with that. And, that got, and he got in trouble. Now, let me tell you why he's important. So, Gutenberg, why was he important? Printing press. Why was Erasmus important? Printed Greek New Testament, all right? Printed Greek New Testament. Let me tell you why Wycliffe is important, okay? He, along with his students, translated the first Bible into English from Latin, so first translation into English, even before the printing press, so this had to be done by hand, uh, from English, and he used Latin. He didn't use Hebrew and Greek, he used Latin, and uh, that was in 1382. He, along with his students, translated the first Bible into English from Latin in 1382. That's why he's important. Where does the first English Bible come from? King James, no. 300 years before that, John Wycliffe translates from Latin the Bible into English, all right? The Bible into English. Now, what happens to John Wycliffe for translating the Bible into English, which is illegal, by the way. 
It's illegal from the state, and it's against the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, Wycliffe, well, at, he died. Wycliffe was condemned for heresy, because he translated the Bible into English, at the Council of Constance in, in 1415, and his body was dug up from the grave. He was already dead. His body was exhumed and burned in 1428, 44 years after he had been dead. So he dies. Later on, a council says, I think he was wrong in translating the Bible into English. Let's dig him up and burn him and call him a heretic, 44 years after he's already been dead. The students that helped him translate the Bible were burned at the stake with copies of their Bibles around their necks. All right, copies of their Bibles around their necks. Uh, there is a Bible translation institution here in Dallas called Wycliffe Bible Translators. They're in Dallas. And what they do is they go to other countries, they learn the language, and they learn the linguistics of that country, and they translate the Bible into the languages of the people. They're named after John Wycliffe. Okay? All right, so recap. Gutenberg. Yeah, you just yell it out when I say their name, what they did. Erasmus. Yeah, also he's kind of a villain, and he's, he's kind of the anti-Luther. Uh, number three, John Wycliffe. What did he do? Yes, I think. Uh, I heard a bunch of, it was kind of uh, when somebody sounds the trumpet for war, but it's an indistinguished sound, who can prepare? Uh, yes, John Wycliffe was the first one to translate the Bible into English, but he did it from Latin, all right? Now let's talk about another guy. Let's talk about another guy. William Tyndale. William Tyndale, all right? There he is, kind of handsome. He has kind of some bluish eyes. 1494 through 1536. I put a quote up there by Tyndale, but you can't read it because it's too small, so just ignore that. We'll talk about Tyndale here in a second. Now, uh, William Tyndale, who is he? He studied at Oxford and Cambridge. Again, all these men are very bright men, all right? These are all very bright men. Uh, let me just mention something as an aside. You, God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, amen? Aren't we glad I mean, I remember taking biology tests in high school and getting like a seven, all right? God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. It seems, though, in church history that God is using these very educated men. The issue, though, is not because they're educated. It's because they know God's word. He uses people powerfully who know his word because the more you know his word, the more you know about God. You know, or you know his character and his promises and these kind of things. So don't think, oh, man, God's never going to use me because I didn't teach Greek at Cambridge. Just know God's going to use you, and the way he's going to use you, though, is through knowledge of his word. That is how he equips you, all right? So William Tyndale is a professor at, uh, at Oxford and then later on at Cambridge, and he was upset with how theology was taught at the universities and wanted to study the Bible directly. So if you were in the Middle Ages, before you were allowed to study the Bible, you had to study years and years and years of philosophy, it's the same today in Roman Catholicism. So I told you, I did some of my uh, theological training at a Catholic university, and the guys that were training to go into ministry have to spend four years studying philosophy and letters, and then after they get their bachelor's in philosophy, then they can do an MDiv and they can study theology for the next several years. In a Protestant education, we typically miss out on that. You'll have a guy that did his bachelor's degree in engineering or uh, marketing or science or something like that. So he has to kind of start fresh. So these guys kind of get a leg up. And so it's the same thing in the Middle Ages. You have to study philosophy and you have to study the, the traditions of the church before you're even allowed to touch the Bible. The problem with that is that when you then come to the Bible, you have so much wrong garbage in your thinking that you can't see the Bible clearly. And Tyndale didn't like that. Luther also talks about this. They don't like how by the time you actually get to read the Bible, you've been so indoctrinated with Aristotle and the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that it's hard to just get to what God is saying in his word. And so Tyndale did not like that. One time, in a debate with a Catholic clergyman, 
And this is one of the things that just pushed Tyndale over the edge. One time in a debate with a Catholic clergyman, he heard the guy say, we are better to be without God's law than the Pope's. Meaning, the Catholic at that time that he's hearing debating basically says, if I had to choose between the Bible and the teachings of the Pope, I'll take the Pope. And that pushed Tyndale over the edge where he's like, this is, this is getting crazy. This is getting ridiculous. Now, why do I mention Tyndale? Let me tell you why he's important. In 1526, he published the first printed English edition of the New Testament, and he published it from Greek instead of Latin. Let me read that again. In 1526, he published the first printed English edition of the New Testament, and he published it from Greek instead of Latin. Portions of the Old Testament were later published in 1534. Okay? So let's recap these guys again. Gutenberg. Erasmus. Printed Greek New Testament. Wycliffe. First English translation. All right, first English translation. Tyndale. First English translation from the Greek. All right, first English translation from the Greek. Now, how do you think the authorities responded to his illegal translation of the Bible into English? A, good. B, bad. Which one? B, yes, they did not respond to it positively. On October the 6th, 1539, Tyndale was hanged and his body burned at the stake. It's reported that his last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. So as he's burning at the stake for translating the Bible into English so they have it, his last words, he cries out, kind of like Jesus would say, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, or into your hands I commit my spirit, or something like this. He cries out, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. King of England's eyes. Now, here's what's so ironic. So he's just been hanged and his body burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English. How long after his death do you think it would be before England allowed copies of the English Bible? Less than a year. Less than a year. So he just goes through this, and he gets killed as a martyr, and then less than a year, they're like, okay, we can have a Bible in English. Come on, guys. It's crazy. Church history is fun because it's so unchristian. That's why it's so fun, okay? It's so crazy. And uh, so less than a year, and uh, do you know who uh, kind of promoted that, kind of promoted this uh, printing of the English Bible? Before you had James I, you have a guy named Henry VIII. Again, is he A, a good guy, or B, a bad guy? You remember Henry VIII? He's the one that has like a billion wives that he keeps beheading. Jane Seymour and uh, Anne Boleyn. Maybe these names are coming back to you. Maybe you learned this in like sixth grade history, and you're like, this is boring. But now it's interesting because it has to do with the Bible, and your teachers failed you because they tried to teach history apart from God, which you can't do without messing up history. And so... Under uh, Henry VIII, you now start to get this break from the Catholic Church in England, and you get the Bible uh, to be translated into English, all right, into English. Now, there was a bunch of versions before we talk about the King James Version. You had what's called the Coverdale Bible, named after a guy named Miles Coverdale. You had the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, which had really strong Reformed Calvinistic leanings the Bishop's Bible, and then most historically, the King James Version. Now, again, Jeff's going to talk about Bible translations next week. Let's first of all talk about the King James Version of the Bible. Before I do that, I need to give some qualifiers, okay? I'm about to give you some facts about the King James Version of the Bible. This does not mean that I'm dogging the King James Version of the Bible. My job as a uh, minister is to always present truth to you. Whether we like it or not, it's to always present truth. I swore to do that at my ordination, and so I'm always going to do that. And so I'm going to mention some things where if you grew up, so if you like the King James Bible and you want to keep using it, yes and amen. Use it. It's fine. Go and be blessed. May may God bless you and keep you, cause his face to shine upon you. Use your King James. I'm totally fine with that. Let me tell you what I'm not okay with. 
I'm not okay with thinking that that's the only or the only good English translation. What are called King James only people. Those people drive me crazy, all right? They're up there with like Mormons and things that drive me crazy, all right? King James only people say that the only real Bible you should use, the only good English translation is the King James version of the Bible. And there's a lot of problems with that we're gonna talk about. So that's what I thought growing up, by the way. So again, I'm not dogging anybody in here. Growing up, I thought that the King James version of the Bible was like really God's word. And then all these other translations were for those that just weren't smart enough to read the King James. That's kind of what I thought of. I kind of thought of when Paul's quoting, he's probably quoting from the King James. He's probably thinking in English. That's kind of what I thought growing up. Maybe some of you grew up in churches where that was kind of taught, where people, uh, I mean, I've heard of pastors that would take different translations of the Bible and like rip them up on stage and be like, this is only God's word. No, all right? But I want to talk to you about, but again, let me just be clear. I'm not dogging if you like or want to use the King James. Go for it. That's totally fine. What I don't want you doing is looking down on your nose at other people, thinking that yours is the only real translation, because we'll find that not only is it not only real translation, it's not the best translation, okay? Is that fair? Nobody's mad at me? I'm super insecure. I need some feedback. Okay. All right, let's talk about the King James Version of the Bible. It was commissioned by James I of England. We have a picture of him. There he is right there. You can't see it. He actually has a really feathery kind of weird hat. Uh, But uh, James I of England, he was originally king of Scotland. Uh, He supposedly was also uh, someone who practiced homosexuality. That has nothing to do with the translation of the Bible or anything, but just interesting fact to know about James I of England. And uh, what he wanted is he wanted a Bible in English that could sort of unite England, that could sort of unite his people. Because though there were different copies of the Bible in English, there was a lot of debate around them. So if you have the Geneva Bible, that has strong Reformed leanings. So if you're not Reformed, uh, it sounds too Calvinistic for me. So I need a different version. And so they're fighting over different versions of the Bible. And so what he wants to do is he wants to come up with a standard that can be used in the churches in England. Okay? So that's what he's looking to do. Now, he commissioned 54 scholars to create an accurate English translation out of the towns of Oxford, Cambridge, and Westminster. So he takes 54 scholars from these three different prestigious towns, Westminster, Oxford, and Cambridge, and says, guys, I want you to work together, and from the Hebrew and from the Greek, I want you to come up with a good English translation that we can use in, uh, in England, all right, in my empire, if you will, in my, in my kingdom, okay? Now, the first King James Version of the Bible was produced in what year? 1611, that's exactly right, 1611, and it originally included the Apocrypha. My first strike against those that say, King James only is the only good version of the Bible, I say, you realize your Bible includes the Apocrypha, right? Which we don't hold to. These Catholic books that were added later that were never part of the Hebrew Bible. So the original King James Version includes the Apocrypha. In fact, almost all versions of the King James Version had the Apocrypha until 1826. So most versions of the King James Version, if someone wants to really talk about being KJV only, it had the Apocrypha until about 1826, okay, 1826. Now, there are different types of the King James Version. Again, for somebody that thinks that's the only good translation, there are different types because the version has actually been changed a bunch since it originally came out, okay? In fact, the American Bible Society compared six versions of the KJV from the 19th century, that's the 1800s, and found over 24,000 differences. I take six versions of the King James from the 1800s, compare them and find 24,000 differences, So again, if you're King James only, which King James? Which one are you talking about? You don't mean 1611 with the Apocrypha, but you don't mean ones from the 1800s where there's 24,000 differences between just six of them, all right? Now, here's the original title 
of the King James Version of the Bible. Do we have a picture of the uh, King James? All right, there's like a leaf of the uh, King James Bible. That's one from 1611. So that's in English. If you try to read it today, it's very ye old English, right? Where the, where the S's still look like F's and all these kind of weird things. But that's about what it would have looked like. Let's go to the next page. This is one from 1613, and you can't read that to title, so I'm going to give you the full title. Okay, so today, if you buy a book and you want to know about the book, you flip over to the back, and there's a little blurb about the book. Am I right? So it'll say something like, in this massive work, Jeff Ashley has written about the definitive way to do theology in a church, or whatever like that, and it'll give you a little blurb of the book. Well, you don't have blurbs on the back of Bibles like that, and you don't have blurbs on the back of books at this time, so here's the original title of the King James Version of the Bible. It is quite extensive. Let me read it to you. The Holy Bible containing the Old Testament and the New, newly translated out of the original tongues and with the former translation diligently compared and revised by His Majesty's special commandment appointed to be read in the churches. That's a great title. We need to write books like that still, where we're just the whole cover is covered in words because you're just giving the summary of the book up front. But that's the original title. That's actually what's written over there on the left. And you kind of see also all the ornamentation. You've got the 12 tribes of Israel. You've got the 12 apostles. You've got the four different evangelists and the four gospels and all these kind of things. I know you can't see that very well, but you can just Google, uh, you know, original manuscripts, King James, whatever, and you can see some of these things. But that would, that's what it would have looked like, all right? That's what it would have looked like. Very uh, ornate, very special, very fancy, okay? Um, another issue, and Jeff will talk more about this next week, uh, but there's some mistranslations and things in the King James Version, which again, give them a break. It's 54 scholars, and it's the first official uh, kind of uh, English Bible uh, under James I. And so for its time, incredible, for its time, absolutely incredible. Uh, but as time has gone on, we've found more manuscripts. Language changes, all right? That's very important. So, for example, in the King James, in 1 Kings 11.1, 1, when it says that Solomon loved many strange women, what, is, what do we think that means today? If you're a high schooler and you read that Solomon loved many strange women, you think, man, he loved a bunch of weird women. Loved a bunch of weirdos. That's what it means by strange. Well, strange, 400 years ago, means foreign, all right, means foreign. So he loved many foreign women, and that was Solomon's downfall. He marries a bunch of foreign wives. And the issue here, by the way, has nothing to do with race or ethnicity. It has to do with the fact that they are not following the God Yahweh. So what happens is if you have a wife and she's like, I really love worshiping Baal. I remember being a little girl with dad growing up worshiping Baal. Solomon, we better worship Baal or you're gonna sleep on the couch. Now all of a sudden, he's ready to worship Baal, and that's what happens. But that word strange, for example, sounds strange to us because strange means something different than it did. The meaning is strange to us, meaning foreign. All right, you with me? So the language changes over time, so we have to make these little changes. Now, one more problem with, uh, <clears throat> with uh, using this kind of King James Version, again, compared to, normal, uh, compared to more modern versions. Normal's not a good thing to say. I mean more modern. Um, do you know how many Greek manuscripts? Okay, so <clears throat> let's just recap. Gutenberg. Yes. Erasmus. Erasmus, <laughs> printed Greek New Testament, all right? Wycliffe, first Bible in English. That's right, Tyndale, English from Greek, very good, okay, very good. James I, commissioned King James, very good. Now, uh, the New Testament that was used in the King James Version of the Bible was Erasmus's Greek New Testament. So Luther used it. The King James would use uh, Erasmus's Greek New Testament. It's called the Textus Receptus. That means the received text. All right, the received text. 
How many manuscripts did Erasmus use in compiling his Greek New Testament? Eight. The New, let me say it stronger. The Greek New Testament used in the King James Version used eight manuscripts, all of them from the Middle Ages, so they come much, a, lot after the time, a long time after the time of the apostles. And he didn't even have a full manuscript of the book of Revelation. He had to take a Latin version of Revelation and translate it back into Greek for his Greek New Testament. So eight copies, don't even have all of them, from the Middle Ages. If you take a modern translation, we'll say the ESV because that's what we use here at Parkway, uh, how many manuscripts do you have? 5,700 in Greek, 10,000 in Latin, and over a million quotes from the church fathers going back to the second century. Those are different. Okay? So again, I'm not dogging to say don't use the King James, but when someone thinks that's the only good translation, they need to realize modern translations are much better. It's not that we've changed things because the standard is not English. The standard is Greek and Hebrew, and as we find new manuscripts and these kind of things, that's why we're always updating these. So again, the Greek used in the King James had eight manuscripts from the Middle Ages, didn't even have an entire copy of Revelation. He had to translate that back to Greek from Latin, whereas modern translations have 5,700 plus a bunch of other things in other languages, and they go back much earlier, like 1,000 years earlier than the kind of things that are being used in the King James. Okay? Other English translations. I won't go into these since Jeff is going to do a whole lesson on Bible translation, but here are some dates for some versions you may have heard of. You get the Revised Standard Version, what's called the RSV in 1885. You get the New Revised Standard Version. This is used in a lot of British academic circles in 1989. And then you might have the New King James Version, the NKJV. That comes out in 1982. Now, we'll talk about other Bible translations next time. What I want you to take away from this, though, again, is one, I want you trusting your Bible. <clears throat> though it is in English, it is God's Word. All right? Jeff, when he talked about textual criticism, showed how much you can trust that. Uh, I want you being thankful when you sit down and you open your Bible or you pull it up on your iPhone, I want you to think, man, I didn't have to be burned at the stake to have this. God is gracious. God is gracious because there were men who had to so that you could have that. I want you to realize how weird history is, all right? It helps us see places that we presume things that maybe the Bible doesn't presume or other Christians haven't presumed. Uh, and I want you to know about this. So when somebody says, well, we can't really trust the Bible, I mean, where did we even get that? You're like, actually, Gutenberg invented the printed press, and then Erasmus did this, and then you can tell them, and you watch their just jaw drop to the floor, and they'll, they'll weep and break down in repentance and faith, all right? Okay, Jeffrey, you want to come up here, and we'll uh, have some time to answer some questions. We might even get out a little bit early today. Questions about the Bible? Yes. Great question. Great question. It is not fair. <laughs> yeah, so just to repeat the question, and then I'll kick it over to Jeff because he talked about uh, textual criticism. Um, so his question is, is it fair to say that there are 24,000 differences between these King James versions of the Bible when a lot of those changes can be things like misspellings, different pronunciations, uh, different punctuation marks, and these kind of things? My short answer is no, that's not fair. Uh, that's the same kind of problem that skeptics against the Bible make for textual criticism. The reason I do mention that, though, is that if you are a King James-only person, there can't be any differences. If this is God's holy, perfect word, and you're going to judge all other versions by it, you run into that problem of saying, which King James version is it? So that's my point in that, but that's not fair. But yes, Jeffrey, your thoughts, too. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. And then, I, So if you're looking at the ESV, uh, which is what we use, then you'll note that uh, there are probably, I think there have been maybe three versions. 
uh, thus far. And each version has slight, uh, slightly different uh, nuances and so forth. Even as they have uh, updated and thought, maybe this English word kind of carries the nuance a little bit better than the previous English word that we had used. And so there's always going to be differences. Um, the, the issue, as Zach was talking about, is when it comes to this particular uh, subset of, uh, of belief that is this King James only. And if you're not familiar with it, if you search the internet and so forth, you'll see it's, it's a very vitriolic conversation uh, where uh, it, it is a denial of salvation for many who are in this particular camp uh, if you do not use the King James Version. Uh, you, have, you are using something that is satanic, uh, and, and that's the word that they would use. Uh, and so I think the point that, uh, that Zach is making is if, if, if they're going to make such a strong argument that the ESV uses the word trust instead of the word believe in this context, and that is a perversion of God's word in, in their own uh, terms, then any sort of discrepancy whatsoever in their particular text, you can make the same argument. Um, and so it's, it's inconsistent. Um, but yes, the vast majority of those 24,000 uh, variants in regards to the, the King James from the, the 19th century or so uh, are really minor, just like the vast majority of the variants between Greek manuscripts and so forth are very minor. So. Yeah, again, I'm not at all against the KJV. If you like it, use it. I'm against people that say it's the only thing that's God's word. So I'm not attacking anybody in here. Everybody in here at this church is okay with people using different translations, I hope. And so this is not an attack on anybody in here. It's not an attack of if you like the KJV. I've used it for other things. I'll use it even sometimes in sermon prep to think of other ways people have said this. And it's, man, the translators, those 54 translators do a fantastic job of putting that into English. So use it. I just don't want it. If you're somebody that goes online and blasts people for using other translations, that's kind of what I'm attacking. So, yeah. Is that fair? Okay. Other questions? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, great question. So our question is, there's a lot of Bible translations out there. Some are better than others. We'll talk about that next week. Are there any that you should just avoid like the plague? You mentioned the one I'm thinking of because we share only one brain. Yeah, so there's a, <laughs> there are a couple of uh, thoughts. First off, so there are uh, certain cultic uh, translations. Uh, so Jehovah's Witness has their own version and so forth. I would not certainly recommend, uh, was it New World Translation? New World, NWT. Not New Living Translation, that's fine. Yeah. New World Translation, NWT. So, so certainly wouldn't, wouldn't recommend that, anything that is produced by uh, any of the cults. Um, and, uh, and then in addition to that, I would say there are, certain translations that I would say uh, aren't inherently bad, but they're not going to be as helpful if you're doing studying. And so, for instance, the message. The message is very paraphrased. We'll talk about this uh, next week. And so it, it is very much a summary of what's there. And so is it good for devotional reading? Absolutely. It can be very helpful for you. Is it great if you're going to study and say, what's the nuance of this particular word, and why does Paul use this word and not this word, and so forth? No, it's not, it's not for that. So there are a number of translations that I would say would be good for devotional reading, but not for like serious study. Um, but beyond the cultic translations and so forth, uh, I don't know of anything that I would say uh, is there is no redemptive value to it whatsoever. Yeah, and the New World Translation that the Jehovah's Witnesses use, it's not a translation. 
what they do is they take a version of basically the NASB and they cut out all the references of Christ's deity. So the places where he's claiming to be God and doing these kind of things, they just cut those out. They don't get all of them, which is weird. They get some of them, but not all of them. So you can even use their own you know, uh, Frankenstein Bible against them. Uh, but that's the only one to stay away. I remember one time a student in class asking a New Testament professor if he even owned a copy of it. And he said, and I quote, no, I don't want it to burn a hole in my bookshelf. <laughs> so <clears throat> other questions? Yeah, here, here's this question. I'll just, I'll, I'll repeat it. So the question is, before the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s, uh, Bibles uh, produced before that would have used manuscripts, some of which we didn't have yet until the Dead Sea Scrolls. So give us your thoughts on that. I guess that's the question. <laughs> uh, you want to, you want me to jump? Okay, so what are the Dead Sea Scrolls? Uh, we're actually going to talk about this. So Jeff's talking about Bible translations. Then right after that, we're going to talk about uh, books that are not in the Bible. So we're going to talk about all kinds of crazy things. That'll be a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of craziness. Uh, I'll make sure to have two Red Bulls that morning. And uh, so, uh, so, yeah, we find new manuscripts all the time. Typically, the changes are really small. Even our later manuscripts are really, really close to the ones that are closer to the time of the apostles. The Dead Sea Scrolls are writings from this community at a place called Qumran, who are called the Essenes. They're kind of this sectarian, get away from all the other Jews because Judaism has become corrupt, so let's live out on the desert and do Judaism on our own. And so mainly what we find there are the writings from that community. We do find some Old Testament manuscripts uh, for example, we found a full-length copy of Isaiah that was a 1,000 years earlier than the previous one we had. And, uh, and so up versions of the Bible after the 1940s take those things into account. So some of the variations, they're just they're slight. When Jeff talked about textual criticism, they're mainly like spelling and punctuation things. They're not big meaning content things. Uh, but some of, the, some of the nuances will be different if you have a modern translation of Isaiah, for example, versus uh, one that was done before the 1940s uh, of Isaiah because we found that new manuscript. That's just one example. There's a few like that, but it's minor. They're all Old Testament books. Again, they don't like, you're not gonna find one that says, and there is not one God, something like that. That's a contradiction of biblical truth. Uh, and so, but yeah, there are little nuances. We find new ones all the time. So there's the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts uh, that goes all over the world and photographs these ancient manuscripts, and they're still finding some. So we'll continue to find some. Yeah. Your thoughts? Anything like that? What else? Anything else? Okay. Uh, hey, we love you guys. I hope you all enjoy this. I hope you have fun, but I also hope that your faith is encouraged. Thank you guys for getting up early to come in here. Uh, super excited just to, I'm now up in McKinney, been here two weeks. It's an amazing city. Oh my gosh. It's just sunshiny and stuff here all the time. It's a great city. Uh, and so super glad to be here. Love you guys. Pray for you guys. Jeff, will you uh, pray for us to, End us out, and then we'll uh, head on over to the uh, service. Yeah, uh, let me introduce you to somebody first. Isaac, you want to raise your hand? Yes. So that's Isaac Munji, and uh, he is a friend of ours. He's a pastor in uh, Kenya, and, uh, and so he's, he's in town. Uh, I think his wife will be here for the services, maybe. Um, and, uh, and so he's doing good work over in Kenya. I've been over to his church a couple of times, and so uh, if you get a chance... Uh, say, to hi, say hi to him, encourage him. Uh, he's doing some really hard but really good work uh, over uh, in Kenya. So let's pray for him and then pray for our time this morning. Father, thank you so much for uh, your grace and uh, your mercy that you are God uh, who is uh, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that you forgive uh, iniquity and transgression and sin, and you show steadfast love and faithfulness to a thousand generations, to those who love you and keep your word. 
And so we bless your name this morning. We're grateful for uh, a history of uh, faithful men and uh, even that you would use some unfaithful men to accomplish uh, redemptive good promises or, or purposes for the sake of your church. And so we're grateful for the history of uh, our language and the history of the Bible in our language and pray that you would help us, Lord, to appreciate it and to trust it and to understand it more deeply. Uh, we're grateful for an opportunity to gather this morning and to uh, consider uh, your word and have it press upon our hearts and to worship together. We're grateful for an opportunity to uh, gather together uh, with Brother Isaac and pray the Lord that you would just bless him and cause his ministry in Kenya to flourish, Lord, as the gospel continues to go out to the ends of the earth. And so uh, would you just encourage him and his family and Rift Valley and uh, and so we love you, Lord. We pray that you would bless us now as we go into services. We ask these things because you're good and you do good. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.